This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Joining us here on the COVID Report, Mr. Jamie Mighty returns. Thank you so much for joining us. It wouldn't be fair for us to start this conversation without talking about the tragic passing of the ambassador, the South African ambassador to Denmark, daughter of Dr. Nelson and Umamuwini Matikizela Mandela, Zinzi Mandela. How does news like this of tragic loss resonate with the rest of the public of this country, especially when this news comes in the wake of a global pandemic? I think it's a very big loss and it's a shocking loss. Nobody was expecting this kind of news at this particular time, you know, and I think it's going to be very difficult to give her the send-off that she deserves because of the restrictions um, that are currently imposed on funerals. You know, uh, I think Mayor Zinzi Mandela would have deserved a, a national state funeral at the right level, um, you know, but perhaps a memorial can be done uh, after COVID-19 has kind of stabilized. So um, it's a big blow. It's a shock to everyone. And I think that many people will miss her authenticity on many of the issues with which young people think uh, were sidelined to an extent um, by the, the, the administration, you know, issues of land. She spoke very uh, clearly on those issues and she was still... Uh, one person who was can on the challenges that South Africa is facing. So I think many young people also feel that they've lost an ally and a mentor and somebody who had the institutional knowledge to guide them along some of the objectives that they're still pursuing. A few things did change according to President Cyril Ramaphosa's quickly gazetted regulations. So from that speech that was delivered yesterday, what were your key takeaway points? Well, the key takeaway points were that um, it's still very much in our hands. And nothing major, in my opinion, was 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 done because um, the big restrictions on alcohol, on uh, movement at night, I think those, they go some way to alleviating a small part of the problem. That small part of the problem being, you know, parties and socialization, which is happening. But I don't think that um, we saw anything that's really going to reduce the number of virus, virus cases that we encounter in South Africa right now. Now, a lot of conjecture has been made about the immediate nature with which the ban on alcohol was reinstated. I've just went through um, a lengthy statement provided by the DA via the form of a Twitter thread released by John Stianese, and thanks for that, John. Now, <laughs> this ban on alcohol, as, as though... It, it, the, the conjecture around this ban on alcohol um, was the livelihoods of those working in those um, outlets that um, distribute alcohol. And the dichotomy that that leaves us in as far as saving lives versus job losses. Do you think the government um, handled this matter of uh, the reinstating of the alcohol ban correctly? I think we must be very careful to not fall into this false dichotomy of lives and livelihood. There are other ways that you can fight this virus aside from just lockdown or reopening. There are ways to provide socioeconomic support to communities that are adversely affected while reducing the levels of the virus in the community. So interestingly enough, uh, at the beginning of March and April, we had a top five in Africa, which included Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, South Africa, and Cameroon. But when you look at the numbers now, Egypt, Morocco, and Algeria have fallen out um, in terms of 
with the numbers that they had initially. And now you have South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, different actors in the top five. So this suggests that um, some of the management of COVID-19 could have been done differently because you're seeing different numbers from the continent, from people who started off basically in the same problem area for a very long time. And Egypt has a larger population than South Africa. They have 87 million uh, citizens, but they've been able to keep their death rate significantly lower than South Africa with uh, some restrictions, but operation of the economy. So um, that's, that's number one. Number two, going to the issue of the alcohol ban. I think that many of us expected that there would be an alcohol ban because the administration had been signposting and signaling that this was a direction that they wanted to go in. That's why they kept repeating to us that, so many uh, trauma cases are because of alcohol. So many uh, hospital beds have been taken up because of alcohol consumption. It is draconian to remove alcohol consumption altogether. Um, and obviously there is an impact on, you know, wine farms, on companies such as SAP, on retailers. A lot of people are going to be adversely affected by the immediate suspension of alcohol sales. There are ways to address that particular sector of the retail economy to make sure that they can withstand the bump, but it's something that um, everyone expected. However, is it fair and legitimate? I'm not entirely convinced that there the government has a persuasive case. The reason why I say this is because if you close off mainstream alcohol sales, you still have the black market alcohol sales, which were already well established. But beyond that, you have a lot of home brewing and one of the home brewing uh, elements that is uh, a bit worrying is that people can make overly potent substances which are dangerous to themselves, leading to the same problem that you were trying to deal with, which is people in hospital beds from alcohol poisoning, from um, you know uh, overdosing on certain forms of alcohol. So if people are going to make alcohol using pineapples and all of these other things, then you're not really dealing with the problem of alcohol. You say you are, but you're still going to see uh, the same alcoholics in same trauma units uh, if alcohol consumption in and of itself was the problem. If the problem was the consumption of alcohol in social settings, then perhaps they should have restricted the days of alcohol sale and also uh, imposed the curfew, as they say, to restrict this partying phenomena. So I'm not sure that the strongest case was presented for the alcohol ban, but it's something that was expected because government has been signposting. I think what caught most people off guard was the suddenness of the ban. Most people thought that if they ban, surely they'll give us a few days uh, before they go into the alcohol ban. But it looks like they didn't give us any notice and they just did it like that. And that was uh, quite, quite an alarming um, reaction. Some would argue another alarming aspect of the speech yesterday was the laws or the regulations set for taxis. So in that, taxis can now travel long distance at 70% capacity and in short distances at 100% capacity. Does this 100% make sense? Some have even argued that taxis are a law unto themselves. What is your take on this? I think that what we've all realized during COVID-19 is where certain pockets of power lie within the country. The very reopening and the very format of level three is one that was really pushed by corporate South Africa. And the president himself admitted that he was under immense pressure 
to uh, open up the economy. And we reopened the economy and now we are on close to 300,000 cases, close to 5,000 deaths, uh, and we are having so many cases a day. That was a direct result of the relaxation of the lockdown from level four to level three as a result of pressure. Now, we've seen another pocket of pressure which exists. It's a political pressure. It's also um, just uh, an industry which has a historic threat of violence towards the state, which they've never really been able to navigate, that being the taxi industry. So as you've stipulated, these uh, regulations, they don't seem to actually make a lot of sense because even if you have 70% um, capacity in long distance taxis, the reality of long distance travel is that people are not necessarily going to wear the mask all the way from Joburg to Durban, for instance, or Joburg to Cape Town, whatever the case may be. And the reality is because that's six hours, seven hours, it's unlikely that people are going to want to wear the mask for that period of time. I've tried to wear a mask for longer than three hours. It gets really uncomfortable. And uh, some people I don't think will uh, obey the regulations. So if one person takes off their mask in a taxi, a long distance taxi, that whole taxi is now compromised, especially because the windows are likely to be closed during winter. We all know window politics and taxis. Um, most times it goes towards the direction of closing the window, not necessarily opening it, especially in a winter type of period. So that's number one, 100% taxi operation in, in small distances is also something that shows that the taxi industry basically got everything they wanted. But but part of that problem that exists is that capital was not willing to bail out the taxi industry. They were not willing to find ways in which to, you know, relax their finance pressures because taxi industry owners uh, have to service their financial payments to all of these loan structures, which are not necessarily operating within the same framework as banks because taxi drivers, when they start off these industries do not have collateral. So they faced a lot of pressure as well. And that's where we find ourselves right now in a situation where we're beginning to see clearly where the pockets of power lie outside of the administration itself, which has the power, of course, to institute regulations, collect tax, run the army and the police. But we're seeing that there are other push factors in the political environment of South Africa. And um, I think that uh, the taxi industry has shown that. Now, when it comes to the issue at hand, will this assist or alleviate the management of COVID-19? I don't think that it actually will. As I've pointed out to you, you've banned interprovincial travel to a certain extent, except for taxes, which can still do it. And most people are going to be using taxes, you know, when we're talking about um, the, uh, the, the poor and the middle class or the lower middle class, they are going to use those taxes to do interprovincial travel. And you're not going to be able to enforce mask regulation in long distance um, um, transportation. So one, you say you want to reduce the viral load, but you allow these taxes to operate in this way, in this way. So it's not going to actually assist us in decreasing the viral load. So basically, I think that what the president did was he came and gave the best presentation that he could under the pressures that he's facing. But the reality is our present condition of um, almost full reopening with uh, curfew and an alcohol ban is not really going to help decrease the viral load. And you still have one center we've not discussed, which is schools, which remain open. We've seen that children have been catching the virus and actually dying from it. We've seen that they are asymptomatic carriers. The average age of grade 12s is 18 and 19. So they are basically adults. And now you have these adults interacting, not necessarily following social distancing rules, not necessarily wearing masks, 
exposing teachers and the average age of a teacher in South Africa is 43. The average age of a principal is 60. When you factor in all of those things together, schools actually become uh, contact points for COVID-19. And even though we had more strict rules being announced for malls and shops, et cetera, we didn't hear anything to address that problem. So we still got schools operational. We still have churches operational. It's not necessarily going to help us fight COVID-19. So I guess everyone really has now to um, manage their own personal life and decide what is the level that they can be under and how can they maximize their safety when they go outside. But the reality is we've taken a very um, laissez-faire approach to to dealing with COVID-19 as things stand right now. Now, Jamie, a lot was made about President Phil Ramaphosa's address to the country last night. There was a moment during the course of his address that I really felt as if we were all collectively waiting for the penny to drop. And then the penny did drop, and we all felt the ground rumble underneath us because of the magnitude of the announcements he made, especially if you are an enthusiast of alcohol. I imagine last night wasn't a fun time for you. But over the course of his address, we saw um, John Steenhazen of the DA um, react to it in the form of that long Twitter thread. We also saw um, very spicy Twitter jabs from um, Buiseni Ngozi of the EFF um, in constant, like, sort of live tweeting reaction to the speech. Has the fight against COVID-19 turned political here in the country? Well, I think it, it, it has turned political and um, John Steinhazen was one of the first people to decide that you, they were no longer going to play the team line and that they were going to like take a differing position. If you recall, when we were still under just lockdown before there were levels, John Steinhazen came out and said, look, we want this structured plan. We want the president to appear. And he then decided that this was going to be how he was going to define his interaction during the COVID-19 period. And he has continued to do that um, uh, as, as things have unfolded. I don't think I've had a day when John Steinhazen actually said, ah, I agree, I like what the president said, except when they rolled out the five-level lockdown thing, which was similar to theirs, but they still found areas to complain. But it, initially we had a situation where all the political parties were like, look, we're with the government, we're with the administration, let's see what happens. But um, the DA was, was the first party to break ranks. And then now we've seen the EFF increasingly break ranks because they are concerned, obviously, about the schools. They are concerned about the reopening. They also were in opposition to the alcohol issue. We've even seen um, Julius Malema now request that uh, Cyril Ramaphosa close those schools. Um, and we will see how that unfolds. But um, the EFF... Um, like at least kept quiet for longer than the democratic alliance but the thing has become a political football and political parties now are trying to position themselves within the confines of the crisis um on one side you've got the more restriction uh, faction which would would be the EFF then you've got the more easing faction which is uh, freedom front plus and the democratic alliance so they want level 2 level 1 level 0 and then you've got the ANC which is saying look we've got this level 3 which is kind of like a basic level two um, and that's where they are but it has become a political issue and you've even seen at some point the churches uh, ACDP got involved to make sure that they could get churches to be reopened so as as things stand um, we are in a political framework and um, the concern is really that the politics is one thing 
the issue here is that we are now approaching 300,000 COVID-19 cases. We are seeing, you know, so many people dying of this. And by the way, the deaths should not be the only focus. People who go into ICU, people who have extreme symptoms are continuing to tell us that uh, COVID-19 has damaged their bodies. It has damaged more than their respiratory systems. There's even reports of people who have had mental and uh, damage because of uh, COVID-19. So now they can't recollect things. Well, very early on into finding out what is the full impact of having extreme symptoms of this particular virus or having extreme uh, conditions of the virus rather. So while the politics is playing out, I think every citizen and civilian needs to be thinking, look, this thing could either kill you, it could wreck your body, or you could be asymptomatic. So if you're asymptomatic, good luck, good, good for you, but there's no guarantee that that's going to be you. So what are you going to do in the interim to take care of yourself in the areas and spaces that you can control? Because clearly at a national level, they have set the bar and the bar is not really high. So now it goes back to you and how you are going to manage it. But in terms of it becoming political, it has been political now uh, ever since I think the Democratic Alliance started demanding that the president show up and account to the people. Now, speaking more on the actual virus, we are expected to see the spike in, expect- in August or September, according to some reports. The number of people who have been infected and lost their lives. Do you believe that government will, will win this fight? Will, in this political battle, will they be able to overcome and will we get to a stage where the numbers are decreasing? Well, eventually we'll get to the stage where numbers are decreasing. It's just the cycle of viruses and these kind of infections. Even flu season dies down at a certain point, right? Um, but the, 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 the approach that we have right now is one where I think that the government has taken a shock absorber approach. They just want to absorb the shock of any of the blows that come from this virus. I think that uh, our approach is very similar to America's approach in that it's as hands-off as possible. And because of that, I think we are going to see a lot of lives lost. I think that the government has taken that approach. I personally um, am uncomfortable with that approach because I think that when you lose lives of breadwinners, the long-term impacts on those households is actually quite dramatic. So if we are going to lose 40,000, 50,000 lives, let's say we don't even lose as many, let's say we lose 20,000, that, that could be 20,000 households who have lost the primary caregiver, the primary breadwinner, the institutional um, matriarch and patriarch, and that now who's going to guide those families. So we, we may only be thinking about the short-term economic losses, but there are other long-term economic losses which could be as adverse or even worse to families. And the lesson from Sweden is that, you know, if you continue to have a high viral load, it will have a negative impact on your economy. So you may say, oh, well, you protect jobs during the, 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 lock, the lockdown period. But if you don't aggressively deal with the virus, you are going to adversely affect your economy over time. However, the approach that has been taken has been one that we are going to absorb the shock and we're going to let the virus do its thing. Um, and unfortunately, that's where we are. I've been more on the cautious end of this conversation of um, 
you know, say that we shouldn't necessarily go this direction, but this is the direction that has been chosen. I don't think that our hospitals can handle the surge that's coming and we may begin to see uh, hospital-related complications around managing the number of people. And we're seeing some provinces are actually trying to manage the statistics of the crisis. So if you look at the Western Cape, they're no longer testing people of a certain age unless you have extreme symptoms. That's directly to manage their statistics and not necessarily the virus. So they just want to have a nice scoreboard, but not necessarily deal with the problem that exists. So this is the reality that we're in. These are the politics of the conditions. And uh, people just have to now uh, think for themselves in terms of as this strategy rolls out, as we get into the worst of it, how are you going to try to control and manage your environment so that at least you don't get this thing because this thing is a very real thing people are dying people are being adversely affected people's bodies are being savaged and ravaged by this thing so you need to actually think very carefully about your own life i I guess that's the that's the only thing that we can say to the average listener we can all understand the politics and the dynamics of it and maybe disagree or agree but the reality is this is a shock absorber approach and um this thing is going to hit us hard. Indeed. Um, and just lastly from me, Jamie, um, we've, we've talked about uh, the ways in which uh, South Africa faces the danger of not being able to cope with the rolling effects of this pandemic. We touched on the ways in which the landscape on, in terms of the African continent has changed as far as who has been the most affected by COVID-19. Now we're in a situation um, where, as you alluded to earlier, in the continent of Africa, South Africa is the hardest hit by this virus. What do you think has contributed to where we are now as far as how far ahead we are of the rest of the pack on the African continent as far as the ways in which the virus has impacted our lives? Well, I think that um, when we moved from level four into this relaxed uh, level three, level three, what is it called? Advanced level three. Um, So when we went there, we really um, moved away from what was being celebrated as a strong response from South Africa. Remember when we were originally being uh, praised by the World Health Organization and several other bodies uh, that were monitoring this. I think at that point, we were responding in in similar ways to the other top five uh, COVID-19 countries, Morocco, Algeria, um, and Egypt. But when when we moved into this relaxed state and followed a Ghana type of approach, because Ghana was the first country in Africa to reopen their economy, they've since seen an increase in COVID-19 cases, but they haven't seen a correlation to the death rate. So they have a a below 1% death rate. In fact, it's below 0.5% death rate from COVID-19. But uh, obviously we've got a 1.5. So uh, our death rate has been higher. That's possibly because we have higher levels of people living with diabetes and other comorbidities. But the deviation really has been in the observance of the social distancing, the hand hygiene, the mask wearing after we got into this particular level. Uh, And it's also very difficult for some industries to do this. And we have to be very honest. If you move around your neighborhood or areas where you frequent, you'll find that um, certain people, certain construction workers, they don't wear the mask all day because, you know, they're doing heavy work. Sometimes they feel like they need to breathe. And in those moments, that's when the virus could be transmitted. So construction workers are some of the people where it's difficult to wear the mask uh, as per the requirements. There are other industries as well where we see people 
either their nose is out or the mask is under their face or I saw at some point people working in retail, they were wearing the mask inside, but when they were going to, um, you know, take their lunch break, they all, six of them were sitting quite close to each other and all of them had their masks off. And I thought, oh, well, then that's where you're going to get it, right? Because you're all close to each other and you're chilling and you're having your lunch, but that's a, a contact point. So I think that when we took the approach that we took, um, uh, by going into this level three, that's really when we deviated from the strong responses from other players on the continent. And maybe because of the diet and lifestyle that um, exists in South Africa and the existence of those comorbidities, then it hit us harder than it did some of the other countries which didn't take this approach. For example, Tanzania, Ghana, Nigeria, we, we have a very high death rate now um, in relation to all of the other African countries. So diet and lifestyle could be a factor, but I think that when we got into this level three, that's when we really saw the change. Personally, in last night's speech, I had noted that the president was quiet on GBV. Following his previous speech, which was largely GBV focused, do you think that this is solely because no one is as upset? Or is this just the president once again saying the right thing at the right time? Yeah, I think um, it, it was, it was a, a big shift away from the previous uh, announcement. And I think that some of our concerns in the last conversation actually now have been uh, verified, right? Because we're like, look, this is a, it's, it's, it's the right thing at the right time, but not necessarily coming with substance behind it. And I think another gap that was seen yesterday was that there was no discussion around ESCOM and uh, people were anticipating that we would have some commentary around ESCOM in terms of the recent reports of corruption, in terms of the load shedding, especially going into the cold front, especially hearing that we're going into this particular surge. So it does seem like the president's speech approach is to discuss what's relevant and current, but not necessarily maintain themes from speech to speech. So we didn't hear any follow-up or feedback from the gender-based violence issues. And that's just because there was nothing in the media that was as provocative and as offensive as what we had seen prior, but the problems continue to exist. I mean, gender-based violence doesn't go away um, based on the, uh, on the me- in the news cycle, you know, and um, we didn't hear enough about it or anything about it at all. And it seems that the presidential speech approach is one that sometimes says the right things, but necessarily doesn't come with follow-ups in respect to those particular things. So it's a very powerful observation that you made. I think it's very correct. And um, reflecting on our last conversation, I think that um, there, there has to be more consistency between the words and actions on, on issues such as this. But unfortunately, uh, we didn't necessarily see that yesterday. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream by www.varfm.co.za.